0: I think a lot of white people who have a problem with the N word have deluded themselves into thinking that they're policing this language to protect black people.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black and, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm April.
0: And I'm Jonathan.
1: We're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do.
0: This week, we're really excited to share our conversation with Nola Haynes, who is a uh, Harvard graduate and PhD candidate in political science at USC. Uh, But before that, April, what's on your mind? So
1: I want to talk about something that, a couple things actually, um, that I'm sure to get us sort of worked up. But also um, are important conversations to have. So, two things that have been on my mind, both surrounding the N word. Ooh, okay. The first thing, it is mind blowing to me that we still hear white people using the N word toward black people. It shocks so, me. So hold to on, this-
0: April. Before we even start, I'm going to stop you. Let's just. Are are we going to be using the n word in this conversation? Because if we are, we should tell people that up front. Uh,
1: I I we probably will.
0: Yeah. Okay. So just Let's everyone listening, just know, consider this your trigger warning, your heads up that we will be using the n i g g e r version of this word um, in this conversation as a way to refer uh, as reference. Um, okay. Sorry. Go ahead, April. Um. Yeah. So you know.
1: You still see those videos online. You, we still have experience in our day to day life where we are called niggers, or we see other white people calling other black people niggers. Right. How is it? I actually, I you know, I hate when people say this. How is it twenty twenty and we're still doing right. this? Well, we are. But right. honestly, how how are we still there? And I think it's. I think, honestly, it all falls back to the idea that white people need and like having racist white people something to fall back on. What can I do? What can I say? Or what can I call this Black person Hmm. that will make them feel that they are less than me? What's something I can always fall back on to?
0: It'll always work. Right. It's it's for lack of a better word, the Trump card. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And so I just, I mean, there's not much more to that conversation
0: because it's a horrible word and, but I just am still like, what? Are we we serious right now? April, do we want to tell the story? I mean, like, so you and I were in Rittenhouse Park, which is like the fanciest sort of frou-frou park in public park in Philadelphia, in center city, Philadelphia. There's, big, beautiful trees everywhere. It's the sort of wealthiest area of the city. Um, We were just sitting on a bench, minding our own business, having a conversation. And a guy came up to us. He looked a little haggard. Maybe Um, he was living on the street. Maybe he was in a home somewhere. He just looked like he was not put together um, and and maybe had uh, psychological issues, not unclear. Um, But remember this April, he came up to us and just started screaming at us about how he wanted to, we were niggers and he wanted to kill us. And kill the niggers, yeah. Kill the, and we have to get out of here and we need to leave and we need to, you know, um, and this was, you know, this white guy, you know, and you know, we both have good jobs, we're both college educated, we're sitting there drinking like, you know, <laughs> lattes. Like in flat whites you know. from Starbucks. Like, right, sorry. like on a bench and and we still felt knocked down five or six pegs, you know, because it's like, oh, gut punch. Like, that just makes me feel less than human, even if it's this guy calling it to it, calling us right. that, you know? Right. Yeah. And literally and probably happened? doesn't have a home to go to, home to and, f- you know, f- through it, fault of his home or not, you know, we are living in our own places. We're making good money. We are respected in society for the most part. But like this guy calling us this, it was just like, oof. Right. There's and nothing, it's...
1: there's no place that we, there's no place in our lives where we could be that it wouldn't hit the same.
0: Right. Being called right.
1: that. Yeah. And I mean, what and... happens, which is so unfortunate, is that to make a long story short, we left the park after complaining to the security guard that was there. The after... police
0: officer, April.
1: Was it a police officer? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. After complaining, I went up and told him what was happening, and he just literally just blew it off. Eh, He's probably crazy.
0: He hasn't hurt you yet, has he? Yet. He hasn't hurt you.
1: Right. Crazy. So we left the park. We found somewhere else to be away from this man who was harassing us. So it's just, I guess what's on my mind is, OMG, that's still happening. And. You know, I know that our listeners aren't probably the types of people who, you know, they don't need to, we don't need to remind you how inappropriate this is, but... This isn't an accident,
0: right? Like, so the fact that this still cuts Black people's legs out from under us, uh, I won't say all Black people, but most Black people, it's a very cutting thing. And the fact that it's the only thing that that even the most sort of downtrodden white person can say to even the most well-respected black person to president Obama, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and you'll still knock the wind out of him. Uh, that's intentional. That was since reconstruction, um, the land, you know, the slave owning, um, elite and the government down South after slavery was abolished, um, reminded and instilled in the poorest of poor white people, this idea that you may be poor and you may be, not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, but at least you're not black, at least you're white. At least you weren't mm-hmm. a slave a few years ago. Um, you know, you can, you can, You may not be able to vote because you don't own land. Uh, white women, you may not be able to have the same uh, rights and, and, and privileges as your white male counterparts, but at least you're not black. You all have it better than black men and black women. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a way to make sure that caste system Although formal slavery was outlawed, quote unquote, that was a way to maintain that caste system, um, and that's why. So when I say, when we say all the time, white people in this country invented the racism that we have in this country, this is what I'm talking about. They made it. Exactly. They made brown skin and former servitude be a, a stamp. You know, Ibram uh, Kendi, Doctor Ibram Kendi's book. Um, who I would. Suggest everyone go read uh, K E N D I as his last name. Stamped from the beginning—that's why he calls it that. You know, from jump we were stamped as um, lower class citizens, and so that's that's why this term is so biting, and that's why even the even a dude that is living out on the streets in Rittenhouse Park in Philadelphia can call me in April that, and it's still is just a gut punch to us um, because that has been passed down from generation to generation as white people have um, grown and developed in this country and amassed wealth and, and and passed it on via inheritance to their children. And Black people were not able to do that, or not allowed, permitted to do that. Um, the word was taken with it. And that, that sense of superiority that comes along with anyone that utters that word to a Black person uh, is is still there. So that's, sorry, that's my little historical rant. And I think that that is really relevant to what we're saying here.
1: Yeah, definitely. On the flip side, you know, we can all agree, us, you know, not extreme racists, us sort of woke white people or, and, and black and brown people that caught calling a, black person, the N word is a horrible act. You shouldn't do that. Period. Done. Okay. Move on. The second thing that's been on my mind is sort of on the flip side. It seems like white people have this desire to sort of go the extra mile, woke white people particularly, and say, you know what? No one should use that word. White, black, brown, purple. No one should use the N word. It's a horrible, dirty word. You know, I just, it makes me so uncomfortable when anyone says it, including black people. I get it. I get it. But that's flawed. I don't believe that white people have any right to police black and brown people's use of the N word Mm. at all.
0: I'm a, yeah. I'm I'm more extreme than you are on this one, April. And this is like one of the, maybe one of the rare places where I'm a little bit more militant than you are. I don't think I think white people have forfeited their right to have an opinion on the N word unless uh, yeah, another I mean, yeah. unless a black person is asking you for your opinion on the N word. I really don't see a reason for a white person to share their opinion on who should or should not be able to say it and what in and and in what form.
1: Well, and if you're asked for your opinion as a white person, your response should be, I defer to your opinion, black person.
0: Of course, I would never use it, but I defer to your opinion, Right. (laughs) Right, Right. yeah. I mean, it just
1: sounds, it sounds ridiculous to know the history of the N-word as white people and know that it was you who made it what it is and, and built up the harm that it still causes today. Yeah. How yeah. can you say then, you know what, change your minds, no one can use it. We're just, we are now we'll saying s- that, you know, yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's not right for anyone to use it. It makes me uncomfortable as a white person when right. you use it, black
0: person. So I just don't have time for that. Right. Like, so I've said this for a long time. Like, I'll be goddamned if I don't use the N-word because it makes a white person feel uncomfortable yeah right like the audacity
1: that's just ridiculous yeah you
0: know um so there's so many things to say about this so one I would point everyone to I think who was it it was Tanahasi Coates who get and I don't he's great and I don't he's not someone I point to a lot but he is someone that um this video was really telling so he was asked um if you just google Tanahasi Coates and n-word or something like that it'll come up he was asked at a public event why can't white people we use the N word and his response is like, why do you want to, why would you, why, exactly. why would you want to use the, why does it, why does it strike you as unfair that black people can use it and you can, um, black people's whole life is wa- watching white people walk through the world and do stuff that we can't do. You know, exactly. Um, these I'm thinking of these uh, COVID nineteen protesters. I was exactly gonna say who, protecting our, are, trying to
1: protect uh, ourselves from the coronavirus.
0: Yeah, who are who are going into the their state capitol in uh, Michigan and Wisconsin with oh, Wisconsin. assault rifles in oh. police face spitting in police officers' faces as they scream at them about their rights being infringed upon. Can you imagine if a black person did, an unarmed black person did that. They would be killed for it, um, or at least severely hurt. Um, armed with military, a dude with us in a Subway sandwich shop with, with a bazooka, a literal bazooka? Like, um, yeah. yeah, so our yeah. whole life is spent watching white people not be able to do stuff, or watching white people do stuff that we're not able to do. Um, that's one thing. The second thing I'll say to this, and then I'm going to stop ranting, is n- nigga- and nigger are two different words. They're, they have two different pronunciations, two different mm-hmm. spellings, and two different meanings. They just don't, they're not the same word. So mm-hmm. to me, as a someone who is a, a linguistics person, uh, uh, by hobby <laughs> and, and <laughs> you know, college training, I guess, um, it... They're just two different words. Words have different meanings and they can be related to one another and have two different meanings. Yes, one is gleaned from the other. One is a version of the other, but they have two different meanings. And so uh, white people can say neither of them. Right. Like, um, right. But but black people said that's my nigga. He he really he ran that errand for me. And what, because I was in lockdown and couldn't go get it myself, man, that's my nigga Man, I love him. That's not the same as what the guy in Rittenhouse Park said to us. That's not the same word. Not even close. It's just not. Um, So that's that's the end of my rant about that. It's just like there's that. That's the answer to your question of why black people can say it and you can't Um, because it's two different words with two different meanings. There are all types of things that change. That 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 there are all types of instances where words get claimed as different as as new and and improved i'm thinking of like right after trump was elected every every, uh anti-trump woman at the women's march was calling herself a nasty woman right like or or even (laughs) and that's a a way to reclaim it
1: like you there's a huge difference between my sister calling me a bitch and some dude on the street calling me a bitch totally one of those people is getting hit like and i think it's clear which one totally different same word but one is inappropriate and one is a term of endearment when used by a certain person. That's totally accepted. Like, and I don't see why white people have such a problem with the N word in that same regard.
0: And I think, yeah, I think a lot of white people have, um, who have a problem with the N word have sort of, for lack of a better word, deluded themselves into thinking that they're policing this language to protect black people. Right from this language and black people using the n-word with two other black people 90 something percent of black people don't care about that there are some who are like well I, that is a dirty word and no one should use right. like the van joneses of like the world Oprah. right like sure like, that's okay the right the, the yeah. booker t washington's historically <laughs> where you know black people need to be uh excellent and elite and you know yeah. Themselves up by yeah the... fine those people fine they, they can have that opinion I, I won't we can argue with them but white people think that they're protecting they've made themselves think that they're protecting black people from it when I think really it's what Ta-Nehisi Coates referred to which is you just don't understand why you can't say it there's right. things you can't say you're just not allowed to
1: and I feel like white people who are made very uncomfortable by black people's use of the n-word need to explore that
0: yep is it is
1: it the n-word that you're uncomfortable with or is it free black people Mm. black people just being them their whole full selves mm. and you witnessing it i feel like the same people who are saying oh i just can't even hear i just can't hear people say that would be similarly uncomfortable in situations where black people aren't even using it they're just being themselves mm. just living their best black lives
0: that is so true
1: You know, I don't, I think people, I think white people fall back on the N-word and say, oh, I just can't hear it. I hate when people use it. Is that actually it? If, you know, nothing about, if everything else in that that situation were the same, but the N-word just wasn't used, I guarantee you'd still feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm,
1: That's mm -hmm. something I think people should explore a little bit.
0: I think that's really, I think that's really accurate. And I think conversely, April, you know, I, When I've had people come up to me, uh, even friends of mine, telling me about how they heard someone like the person in the park or like the person at Walmart in these videos that are yelling at black people using the using nigger. Mm -hmm. Um, They heard someone do that and they were so shocked and so aghast by it. And they just can't understand how people can still use that word. And this is the first version of the word you're talking Mm -hmm. about, April. Um, And my response is always, oh, what did you say to them? Right. Did you stop them? Did you stop them the way that you stop black people when they say, that's my nigga? Mm -hmm. Did you stop them the way that you, did you recoil the way that you, um, you did when you hear Jay-Z say it in a song? Right. Right. um, Because if you didn't, then that should tell you everything you need to know about your priorities here.
1: Right. And why are you telling me about it? Why are you telling cookies? me, cookies Right, Like, I don't just give out to people left and right. Like,
0: of course, I hear that people use them where they, I get called it all the time. I've been called it in LA since I moved here. We've been called it in the, the northern state of Pennsylvania when we live there, you know, everywhere we go. Yeah. Um, this was a good one, April. This is a good one. This is important.
1: Yeah. I didn't get as mad as I thought I would, which is good. Something I'm working on. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> but yeah. Running I mean, down I think... your angry black woman. Exactly.
1: Except not at all. Um, I just think it's good for white people to think about those things. Sit with them. Why do you feel the things that you feel? Why do you feel the need to police black people? And, And sort of explore where those feelings come from. And yeah, talk about them with your white friends. So that's what was on my mind, John. Up next, I'm excited for us to share our conversation with Nola Haynes.
3: Nola, thanks so much for for talking with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited about this. I really am.
1: Great. We're really excited, too. To start, wouldn't mind just telling our listeners a bit about you, about your background, and uh, maybe what brought you to USC and and the things that you're studying now.
3: You know, it's so funny. Um, I hardly ever talk about myself, so I don't know why I'm always taken aback when someone asks me a question (laughs) about myself. Um but I will um the starting point. So l- l- let me back up a little bit. So I'm not originally from California. I'm from New Orleans originally, thus the nickname Nola. Um no. so when I came out here and it was no like big romantic reason, unfortunately, it literally was because my parents got a divorce and my mom was like, You coming with me. Mm. That's it. <laughs> oh, no. That's it. There you go. It, it, it wasn't for It wasn't Hollywood ambitions, you know. Like, (laughs) my mom keeps asking me, and I'm just like, "No, it's a job." Right. (laughs) UCLA has a really good 401k. Right. (laughs) Just keeping it real. Um. So, yeah. So I came out here as a teenager, and life was very different from my very private world in new orleans catholic school very different life from being thrust into like public school like 15 minutes outside of la so very different life but within that i actually did fall into acting believe it or not i had my first talk show when i was in high school oh, wow. and yeah and so from there that went to like beauty pageants to then i really actually wound up in hollywood um and, you know, starting with uh, doing background work on like Saved by the Bell and that turning mm. into principal work and then true story, Screech from Saved by the Bell really is really responsible for my career because he hooked me up with his agent and then it just kind of took off from there. Oh that is a true story. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Screech coming through again. Right? Yep. Yeah, for real. Like when I tell people that story, they're like, for real? I'm like, I know. It's, it's a long story. But um, I did that. I did the acting grind um, for over a decade, and actually, the the current season of my show, I'm talking to one of the casting directors, Leah Daniels Butler, who is the casting director for Empire, and she's been my friend for a very long time. She's been in the business for a long time, and she mm. tells this story about how the movie Baby Boy came down to me and Taraji. Oh my and goodness! Oh yeah. Like my, I'm, I'm going to write the book, y'all. Right. <laughs> oh my God. That's, wow. But which is to say, you know, there are a lot of reasons why I choose to leave Hollywood, but the one, the one reason that made the most sense for me is when hurricane Katrina happened. Mm. Um, and I grew up on a college campus, like in new Orleans, a lot of people don't know this, but we value education so much but in the media if you were paying attention to the media during Katrina it was all this negative narrativizing around my home and that infuriated me um and it drove me back to school and you know all Mm. throughout my years of acting I tried to also have a college career alongside but it never worked out Mm. so I just had to like commit to this thing and I told my mom I'll never forget I was like mom I'm going back to school she was like girl bye (laughs) <laughs> it's like you say that okay. every other month, <laughs> oh, and man. i was like, no, for real, for real. And um, I, I hunkered down. I went through community college, and I went through with a vengeance. I mean, I like won every scholarship known to man. I mean, like I went, I went back to school with a vengeance because it is so crucial to the mm-hmm. foundation of my community. Um, and, and then from there, I transferred to UCLA. And then from there, I went to Harvard Divinity School. And then from there, now I'm at USC. I did. A, I went back to UCLA. So I did about a year at the Center for Community College Partnerships and AAP, um, running programs for first-generation community college students to help them transfer to four-year institutions. So I went back home, as I sort of speak, because I, I was affiliated with them all throughout like grad school and everything so I had always worked with the Center for Community College Partnerships but then they brought me back on as professional staff but that took a while to happen and um, but simultaneously I was still trying to figure out if I wanted to go to law school or if I wanted to go to PhD route like that's Mm -hmm. always been my tension Um, and because I'm surrounded by so many lawyers I decided to get my PhD
0: (laughs) I think that's probably the right call.
3: Yeah, that's <laughs> fair.
1: <laughs> Lawyers are like they're pretty lame. So. As I was say, as a rep, I will tell
0: you.
3: I uh, like you, Jonathan. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um, okay, so you are uh, you went the PhD route. So what are you what are you studying now?
3: So specifically, um, I study um, security, national security, uh, foreign policy. My particular kind of intervention inside of uh, national security is identity, like uh, making sure that we're not constructing policy and law based on identity. And the travel ban is one of the most current, um, examples as to why we probably should not construct national security policy based around identity. Korematsu established strict scrutiny and, um, hold on ban. i'm
0: backing you up i'm backing you up because is not the law people do not know what you just said so koromatsu is a uh case. <laughs> he's like hold on <laughs> and strict scrutiny is a level a way of uh it's a level of judicial review right so it's the highest mm-hmm. level of judicial review that a court looks at a case to at a law to discover whether it's constitutional or not that's as much as I'm going to say about that. But keep yeah, going. sorry,
3: <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much all you need to say. But you know, the travel ban. I mean, there's still arguments that it upended Korematsu, right? Right. Um, and that it challenges strict scrutiny, and I do less of that. I do less of the legal analysis, more, mm. and talk more about how the lower courts definitely said, "Oh no, this is about identity," boo. Like mm-hmm. you know, like so. Mm-hmm. It's so I, I talk about it more from the identity perspective and how the lower courts definitely came in and said, you cannot make laws based on identity. You cannot do it. Right. And then the Supreme court clearly overturned all of that. But, um, so that's one of my, my, my core examples that I really drilled deeply Mm -hmm. into. And then with the latest six editions, which are mostly African countries of the latest travel ban, um, you, you know, it's, it's just a very complicated issue. That to me is not so complicated. Like the writing is on the wall. You know, this right. is about identity. This is right. about nationality. This is about religion. You know, this is about ethnicity and race.
2: Period. Right.
0: And they've said that. That's not even that that feels like that's hardly contested based on what we know right. of what they they announced what this these bans were gonna be. And we we aren't even talking about the new bans that were put in place days ago, moments ago, even yeah. for relating to coronavirus, which we can probably Get into um, so I, look so I, we we mentioned this before we started recording that a lot of our listeners are um, really interested in our political views and jumping into politics and so I'm so excited mm-hmm. that we have you here to talk about we're going to dive into race and politics we're going to talk about election 2020 um, mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about some national security stuff uh, but first I think we should ask the question. Um, I want to hear what life is like for you as an academic, um, mm-hmm. as a as a black woman, uh, Child.
2: in the in the, mm. in the field that you're in
0: too. Which is, <laughs> I've never met anyone in that field, uh, and so I can't imagine that it is uh, the this widely diversified field of you know uh all t- different shades of people and genders I just can't imagine that um and so I can't imagine the sort of obstacles you're facing in in academia as a black woman so I'd be really interested to hear about that.
3: Woo, um, yeah I know
0: that's a huge yeah. and it just like
3: <laughs> I'm gonna have a hell of a testimony in about two more months I can't get too much into it but um okay, okay. yeah it's real in the
2: field <laughs>
3: um, no, it's not a lot of, so you know, not in higher education. We have all of these different, um, silos. Like you have the big silo and inside of that silo, you have like 5,000 other Russian dolls inside of it. So mm-hmm. I want to explain to people where I sit inside of political science. So I am a political scientist, right? So inside of political science, you have American politics, comparative politics, and international relations. I do international relations with some American and some comparative components, but mostly international relations inside of international relations. I study security studies. And that is the part of international relations that kind of deals with, um, the the security, international security, regional security, that sort of thing. And so even inside of that, I'm situated kind of like inside of terrorism literature and then also national security literature.
2: Right. So I
3: say all that to say so I just want people to really understand like you know where I sit inside of the big bubble of political science. Right. Um, so which is to say basically I study war and power. There aren't a lot of uh women in general studying war and power. And if they are, which actually, I don't think you can do any of this work without studying power at the end of the day, because it's all about power, right? Um, It's usually from a different type of intervention. Um, Tackling it from a national security perspective, not so much. And I am usually always the only woman on every panel. Um, Mm -hmm. The last paper I gave It was so, it was so many military folks there that it was just intimidating. Isn't the right word. It was just, where am I, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like it was so surreal, you know? Um, and I'm the the conferences that just got canceled. We had one in Hawaii coming up the end of March. And then I think my conference in Morocco is going to be canceled in June too. I just got an update But these are very hardcore national security uh, papers around terrorism. Hmm. So, and, you know, ironically, I wound up here because of going through the Boston bombings when I was at Harvard. So Interesting. Wow. This comes out of real life, like all of my entire research journey. Like when I first started at UCLA and I first started researching, like I was researching Black Catholics. I was researching... I've always done religion and politics. So I was researching why were the last five black mayors in New Orleans all Roman Catholic? So mm-hmm. I was doing that work. And then when I went to Harvard, um, I switched programs. I was in a two year program and I switched, switched to the three year program. And inside that program, you have to learn a language. And so I learned Arabic. So long story short oh,
0: no big deal. Just like that. You
3: know, that. hair flip. Pick um, that up.
2: <laughs> that
3: up. <laughs> um so when I was studying Arabic the Boston bombings happened wow. and I'll never forget it was such a harrowing day I was literally in the library meeting my TF because you know at Harvard they're teaching fellows not TAs right. like the rest right. of the world of course um. like the rest <laughs> of the peasants exactly <laughs> <laughs> I was meeting with my TF and um, uh so it would happen so i'm fast forwarding fast forwarding one day i'm standing at the bus stop in front of the law school with my gigantic arabic book and this white man strolls up honey and just spits on me
1: oh no Wait.
3: Just... Yeah. Oh. Mm.
1: wow
3: and my hair i, I my hair I was, was wrapped my like, let locks let were wrapped mm. mm-hmm and I don't know who he thought I was or what he thought my identity represented for him, but clearly I was some sort of threat to him, right? Wow. And me being perceived as a threat made me start thinking about what it must be like to be in a Muslim body. I know what it's like to be to be in a black female body. And I was like, I wonder what it's, I can't even imagine what it must feel like to be in a body that's perceived to be Muslim, right? Mm. And someone feeling like they could just walk up to you and spit on you, right? It's crazy. So I started drawing all these connections because at the end of the day, the reason why I go so hard for this work and the reason why I'm bringing identity along in national security is because people of color are the most securitized, period, mm. period, right? So I felt like I wanted to understand a lot of these different processes about national profiling. Right, so it just kind of started with those types of questions, and then it just blossomed. And I was working with um, Muslim students in an inter- in an in interfaith community dynamic at Suffolk University. So all those different things to come together brought me to where I am today, um, okay. which the journey, if you're trusting a journey of research, I mean, it should take you along different, you know, roads and all these different things. So I say all that to say that I didn't come to national security because like I grew up in a hardcore military family or something like that. No, it had nothing to do with that. It's all very lived kind of experiences for me. So when I'm talking about this work, I'm bringing a level of passion to it that maybe other people on the panel are kind of just really very surgical about it. Mm. Right. So I would say that in and of itself sets me apart because I'm not just talking about this from a very technical perspective. I'm talking about it because this has real import for people's lives. Right. Um, And I think that's what makes academics of color um, sometimes a little bit different Because a lot of the things that we're talking about is not out of curiosity, it's out of lived experiences. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's different. It's different for me because it's not just a curiosity. So when you carry that kind of experiential thing to your work that's going to be different and then sitting on panels with my long locks you know what I'm saying and honey right. she's gonna be dressed trust and believe she's not gonna show up <laughs> mm-hmm. looking like she just rolled out of bed you hear me so they don't understand what's going on they're looking at me like who is this
2: right I'm
3: oh,
0: like, Hey y'all. See, I, that's, that's a whole interesting topic in and of itself right like so how watching the the suit and tie old white man's reaction to a uh, young black woman who knows how to dress and knows and is not going to be quiet about it. I would just oh, mm-hmm. I'd love to be a fly on the wall of these
3: panels. Oh, oh. and for, you know, and for the most part, they are really gracious because they're yeah. shocked You're to see there. me sitting there. <laughs> you know, um, wow. I remember one this one panel. There was this one older black man. He was from um, the War College. <laughs> And he was just so proud. Like you just, like I was his daughter, his granddaughter or something, you know, like I'll wow. never forget that. He was just so proud to see me on that panel. And he's like, I don't even know if I paid attention to what you said. He's like, I'm just so proud of you.
0: <laughs> oh, that's so great though.
3: Okay. So
1: war power. Wow. So you're studying international security, foreign policy, terrorism, and we have Donald Trump in the white house. Oh. So do you want to talk about, you know, his administration's <laughs> performance as it relates to the things that you're studying? Um, are there things that you've that you've worked on, that you've studied, that you've researched or come across that, you know, maybe weren't necessarily reported or, you know, reported widely? Um, but, yeah, if you want to discuss how how the Trump administration is, is dealing with these issues um, as you see it.
3: Right, so because Trump is in the news every single day, every moment of the day, there's so much going on that we actually we're not paying attention to because you know the 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 Trump reality show is on twenty four seven, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I actually predicted that that his first policy would be identity based. I'd never. I I kid you not. I mm-hmm. was in seminar one night. And it was in my, um, in, I think it was in my security and foreign policy class, and, and so the professor re- re- went around the table and he asked all of us. He's like, "So, you're 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 a policy advisor. What would you advise the Trump administration to do or not to do?" And so, you know, we're are IR scholars, so everybody said something like, "You know, trade. You know, don't get out of T- TPP or right. don't leave the Paris P- Peace mm-hmm. Corps, You know, stuff like that." I said, well, I hope he doesn't come out of the gate with some sort of identity-based policy. Hmm. And lo and behold, the travel ban was the first major policy they enacted. And so
0: remind people what that was, because that seems like it was 20 years ago, right?
3: January of 2017. Oh, wow. Yep. Yep. First
0: policy out the gate. So he banned he restricted travel from all of these countries that are majority Muslim, basically. Yeah. Um, and they were pretty much all brown countries. <laughs> or absolutely. Countries, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Um, oh, man. So the way that this works, so there's something called the um, state-sponsored terrorism list, which could also be called the, the terror watch list. Hmm. So this list is not new. It is a list that gives the Secretary of State a lot of power. It was—it's funny because you know everything that the Trump administration does and it goes wrong, they blame the Obama administration. But it was something very interesting that the Trump administration said that wasn't quite untrue. They said that they got the names of the countries to put on the ban from a list that existed in the um, Obama administration, and that's not untrue. There is a list that watches. That you're placed on this list if you do, if you're engaged in any sort of um state-sponsored terrorism. And that can look many ways, you know. But what's interesting is that really and truly the Secretary of State has so much power over this list, you can literally just be an enemy of the Secretary of State and maybe wind up on this list. Right. Mm -hmm. There are some states on the list that have very long histories. Like we, Iran has yo-yoed on and off this list like you would not believe. Like like a diet almost, you know? Um, <laughs> so they took some of the States and put on a travel ban. But what's interesting about the, the terror watch list is that it's very specifics and it's usually against certain people, not entire, the entire citizenry, not the entire country. Right. You know, like usually there's a ban on very specific people, you know? So this is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the the first, like, Iraq had to be taken off the first list, first of all, because we were still heavily embedded with Iraq, right? And, and all the different things that needed to happen for the Supreme Court to ultimately say yes, and that included add, adding Venezuela, which... Mm. Also, there was some very personal things with Trump. And at the time, Rex Tillerson with Exxon. The, it, it's such a huge story, so, right? And I'm, Remember and I wanna, Rex Tillerson?
0: Yeah, right. And I want to back mm-hmm. you up just to clarify. So when you said in order to make it okay for the Supreme Court, so this was the travel ban got challenged in, in, yeah. in court and went the whole way up to the Supreme Court and mm-hmm. um a, various iterations of it were being examined. And one of Mm -hmm. the things that the administration did, and correct me if I'm wrong, one of the things the administration did was add countries like Venezuela to it, which is Mm -hmm. a non-Muslim country. So they could say, look, this isn't a Muslim ban. There are other countries on this that are not Muslim. They are not. um, So you can't court. You shouldn't rule that this is illegal based on that we're doing this based on religion, because look, Venezuela's on there and they're not Muslim. So is right. That is that what you're what you're saying when you said adding uh, Venezuela to it, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, but it but you you know this, it was just more of a legal procedure because oh, yeah, that's the one on process,
0: right? Right, right. right. They it, did it just for a pretext. It was not exactly
3: it, yeah, exactly, uh, like it was constructed so they could win their argument around presidential powers, like the Supreme Court, you know, they didn't continue with the same line of argumentation as the lower courts.
2: Right. You know, he
3: won on presidential powers. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And this is all under the guise of keeping us, quote, safe. Exactly. From what? And then the thing about it is that's even more annoying is that not only was global terrorism down around the world, but nuclear proliferation is the growing threat and domestic terrorism. Mm -hmm. Right. right? Right. So why are we still engaging in banning countries like Nigeria?
2: Right.
3: What? And, you know, you asked me a question earlier about some of the things that we don't see. So I'll go back to the travel ban and then I'll talk about another issue that Jonathan, I'm sure is on your mind because it's a legal one. Um, But I have a friend um, who's a civil rights lawyer at DHS. um, And the fight, the fallout from the refugees, you know, Americans, we tend to not think about those sorts of things, right? We don't think about how something like the travel ban impacted tons of refugees Hmm. who are still dealing with the fallout from the travel ban, right? Um, Which is going to be exacerbated by the additional six countries that were added. And on top of that, We don't know what this European piece regarding a coronavirus, how all of that's going to factor into it. It's a global mess. It's a global mess. But it's Trump TV all day long. You know, we're not looking at Al Jazeera and we're not looking at what's going on in Syria, which is horrific. Mm.
2: Um,
3: You know, because I watch the world, you know, I'm, I'm keyed into all of these things. I'm keyed into what we struggle with here domestically. And I'm keyed into what we struggle with internationally. And what I try to tell people, because uh, there, you know, that there are some there are some black academics who would probably be happier seeing me in more of um more of a strict race-based sort of right. program. Right. Sure. But I feel we need to be everywhere. And I feel that when we are heavily, secu- when, when security happens, people with melanin in their skin are the first to be heavily policed. Yep. Period. Yep. yep. Right? right. And that is just not from a local, like LAPD perspective, you know, I mean, from a global perspective,
2: right? Right.
3: Because going back to the Boston bombings, the brown man who they blamed initially for the Boston bombings was not the right man. But they broadcast this man's name and photo everywhere.
0: Right. I remember that.
3: And then another issue that that a lot of people aren't necessarily talking about enough is how Trump has stacked the judiciary. That horrifies me.
0: Trump and the Republican-controlled Senate have pushed through, I believe... Uh, many more judges already in Trump's three years in office than Obama had pushed through in all of his eight um, by by multiples. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah.
3: Numbers. And they're all really young. So they're, they're going to be there right. for a
0: long time. Right. And these are these are judges that are hostile to Roe v. Wade. They are right. hostile to, they, one of the questions that in, from a race perspective, one of the questions that all of the, a lot of our, um, representatives are in the Senate are asking these judges as they're being interviewed and going through the process is, do you believe that Brown versus board was correctly decided? Um, and so that is of course the, the case that, hmm. that outlawed school, wow. uh, segregation, they asked these people, do they believe Brown versus board, uh, was correctly decided and a and not insignificant number of these judges will uh, have refused to answer that to give a straight answer on whether that was correctly decided. Um, and these are people Trump is putting forward to be lifelong judges on mm-hmm. on the federal bench, and mm-hmm. that is just that is a that is alarming. And lawyers all over the country are just freaking out because that is going to be generations of case mm-hmm. law. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh, you got mm-hmm. me now.
3: <laughs> they probably want to bring it back to the Plessy days. You know, I'm right, sure they'd be exactly. fine with separate but equal. You know, I'm right, sure they'd, they'd love that. Exactly. Oh, oh.
0: So, okay. So I want to drill down a little bit because it, it, like I said, it's so rare that we have someone on the pod that is actually an expert, legitimate expert in politics. Let's talk about race and politics um, mm-hmm. from, uh, from, uh, you know, a a an American perspective. So not international. I'm gonna bring you, I'm gonna reel you in from international uh mm-hmm. terrorism, uh international terrorism and counterterrorism. What what of the what do you see as the implications of um Trump's presidency on on black people and black society in America based on all of the norms and policies and laws that are being sort of flouted or changed. And I know that is a
2: huge
0: question. But I feel like we just gotta start talking about it. I mean, just mm-hmm. in this country, what are what's it gonna look like when this guy's mm-hmm. out of office based on all the changes we're seeing?
3: Well, you know, Trump is such an interesting figure. We know he's polarizing, but he's such an interesting figure. I um maybe about maybe last year or so this time, like like time is kind of like all jumbled in my brain. Right, right. I was spending a lot of time in New York. With my ex-partner at this point, mm-hmm. who owns a uh, hip hop magazine, so I met a lot of I met a lot of rappers, and I met a lot of rappers who were around Donald Trump. Hmm. right? So right. in Donald Trump's mind, I take pictures with famous black people. How can I be racist? right? Like right. in his mind, right. I think that's what he really thinks. Right. so i and his supporters minds too that's what they think yeah absolutely so i've had the chance to talk to some of these rappers who were in the pictures with donald you know who would kick it with him at games and like right and they would all say the same thing It's like this is like i do not know this person mm. um so he's he's a polarizing figure because like ronald reagan people are familiar with his celluloid presence, right? From that reality show. Mm -hmm. So people are engaging with someone who they think they know, right? And put him in a real life situation, like the presidency, we all really see that the emperor is truly not wearing any clothes. I really wanted to put him back on and that it really is all smoke and mirrors, right? There is no substance there. So I think, Malcolm X had a very good way of framing this. He once said that only within our community that we look to comedians as experts, Hmm. you know, Hmm. and that resonated with me. And you have to hear the way that he explains it. Like, I I just, I probably didn't do it any justice, but the point being, I think celebrity culture resonates within black culture so prominently Hmm. that there's something about, that celebrity presence that kind of draws us in and we tend to think what they say is fact, right? Mm. Like we, we tend to take, take that thing as, as being factual. So I think people are really trying to, trying to discern between a reality show, dude, the dude who, you know, who has all these pictures with all these famous black people. Right. And then on top of that, I think Trump resonates with some personalities because he's anti everything. Right. Right. You know, and Americans, period, we like the underdog. That's just something that's kind of like ingrained inside of American culture on top of someone who's seen as feisty, right? Right. So if you are that type of personality, you're like, oh, right. So he's putting establishment in check. He's doing this. He's doing that. If that's all that's interesting to you, I could see certain Black folks being interested in a Donald Trump, Mm
2: -hmm. right?
3: I'm a substantive person you know, I'm a researcher. So I am looking at facts and data. I am looking at impact. I'm looking at outcomes. He is awful at this job, period. Okay. But I understand that there aren't a lot of people that are interested in, in looking at, at at it from a very kind of, um, laser like view. I understand. It's exhausting. It's tedious. I get it.
0: It's hard to well, keep up with. There's so it is many very hard things. to keep up
3: with. It is. And then he's out here, you know, um, pandering to black folks. You know, he right. has Kim Kardashian on speed dial to free, you know, people from jail.
2: Right. He's doing
3: the stuff at the HBCUs, right? And let's not even the whole Kanye West thing. Oh right. my gosh. Totally. You know, so people are confused. You know, they're like, Well, it seems like he's doing stuff for black people. So is he a racist? Is he not a racist? Like I'm confused. Right. But if you watch his actions, right. If, if you go all the way back to the central park five and his rhetoric without having proof to just basically throw them underneath the jail for a crime that they did not commit.
0: Right. They You been, need
3: to watch things like that.
0: They've been exonerated. And we mentioned this on a past episode though. The Central Park Five have been exonerated, right, Mm -hmm. for years and years and years. And um, this movie, when they see us, uh, came out on, you know, a few, a year or so ago. And so the Central Park Five were back in the news and Donald Trump was asked about it. This is like, you know, 2019, he was asked about it. He said... Uh, well, you know, the prosecutor, things are, a lot of people say a lot of different things about that, so it, a lot of people argue both sides of that, and you just, it depends who
1: He you pretty much to, doubled and, and, down on what he had yeah, initially he, said mm-hmm. He
0: did not say, like, oh, well, yes, they've been exonerated, like, he still believes that he mm-hmm. was wrong on that, on calling for these five boys to be executed, to bring back the death penalty for them to be yep. executed, um, mm-hmm. So, what do
1: we see as some of the lasting effects? Whether Mm. Trump is no longer president in 2020 or 2024, we'll have a new president eventually. um, And they'll, you know, regardless of who it is, they will be very different from Trump because he's hopefully one of a kind. Um, But even when we do have a new administration, What do we see as some of the lasting effects as far as, um, as it, as it relates to black people?
3: As it relates to black people, um, well, structurally, you know, there are, I was having a conversation with a friend in Oakland who's building these really dope kind of integrative cultural centers with office space and, and he's using, um, a program from the Trump administration called um, community zones or something like that. I think it's called community zones. Yeah. So there are some things inside of the administration that aren't terrible, aren't terrible for black folks. Right. Right. I, but I wouldn't say that there are things in place that are going to make our existences better, but I can't say that there has been policy necessarily to make our lives worse. You know, aside from the huge, huge, huge tax benefit that he gave to the rich, right. now that right. definitely will have a strong impact. Um, um, it seems like,
0: sorry, I'm just, I'm like sweating here as we're talking about this because I'm so worked up. But it seems of course. Like a lot of this stuff, of, so as we know, since the 60s, you know, it is, it is illegal to overtly discriminate on the basis of race. It's, it's illegal to say Black people can't do this, but white people can um, right. So we don't see that as much anymore. Sometimes we still do. But um, the tra- I think the travel ban is a good example of just blatantly discriminating on the basis of race and national origin. In but voting. And, voting. and, and I was going to say in voting rights. Um, mm-hmm. And that's exactly where I was going with this, because I think a lot of these things are more insidious than that.
3: Um, right. Absolutely. Never,
0: yeah. They're never saying, oh, we're trying to suppress black people from voting. But the federal court in. North Carolina. When we talk about the the gerrymandering laws and the practices that were right. in place in North Carolina, for example, the court said that they used uh, what they say surgical like precision in targeting black communities to suppress Absolutely. their vote. Mm. And so that is, um, and that's a quote: "surgical like precision." And so um, it it's those type of things that the Republican Party are so much. More, and I'm saying this strictly political. So much mm-hmm. more effective politically in getting what they want than the Democrats are, and what they want ends up having a trickle down uh, detriment to uh, disproportionately to Black and Brown people is what I see happening. And no, absolutely, and it it, it, is, it is just. But no one does it. No one says it by name, you know.
3: I call it pandering politics. Yeah. So it's one thing to enact substantive policies, like a very, very strong infrastructure plan that will put people back to work. You know, you have construction. I mean, where I live in Northern LA, I mean, there's construction everywhere. I mean, there is literally new uh, condos and retail offices going up every five minutes. Right. That that's one sign of growth. Um, But what I'm saying is, Outside of California, when I travel the rest of the country, Mm -hmm. you know, you have you have black folks who are just not working and you see it. You know, in California, we we have homelessness, obviously. Oh, my goodness. Homelessness is everywhere. Huge. But it really does look like everyone. You know, when I when I travel the country and I see um, black folks working or not working like you see it so so much more profoundly t- in That's my personal so true. life,
0: that is so you true. know,
3: and I always have to remind folks that California is not, it, it's not the only part of the country. And in many instances, it's not the real world. I mean, right. my lifestyle, it, it, you know what I'm saying? It's its own literal yeah. planet, you know? Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, you, you, you can do things like, um, prison reform, which I still haven't really sat down and actually read what it actually will do. I don't know how substantive it is.
0: It affects about 1% of currently incarcerated people. So it's such a small thing, but it's a thing. Exactly. So what's
3: the substance, right? So it's pandering politics. So where, like, in terms of freeing people, you know, who who were wrongly in prison? Yeah, I think that's wonderful. But I think You know, this is a tricky thing because I personally think pessimistically that it is optics. And I'm sure for the person that they're freeing, it's not optics. This is their real lives, which is the beautiful part. But Trump knows optics. You know, he if he doesn't know anything else, he knows that. And that's why I call it pandering politics, because Mm. how substantive do these policies really penetrate? I mean, what is it really, really, really going to change? Right. Right. Or is it just a good photo op?
0: He is, you know, one of the things that I've realized with him is that he, this sort of message that he has, he's he's such a, he wants to please whoever is in the room with him. And yeah. so he sort of gathered his political, he being Trump, sort of gathered his political views like in the 80s, like when he started paying attention to politics and sort of is stuck in that mindset. And so he says things that sound like cool talking points from the 80s and 90s, and people liked that. People liked g- hearing he was gonna go shake up Washington. People liked hearing that right. he was gonna, you know, pick a pick a topic, you know. Um, but he he doesn't care about any of this. I don't view Donald Trump as having a political ideology. I don't think that right. he cares about any of this. I think it's just what he can or can't get done and who he can or can't please and 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 enrich himself from doing it. <clears throat> um, right? I just feel like I can't I couldn't I can't put my finger on what Donald Trump actually believes in terms of policy. I just don't know.
3: I think he only really worships at the altar of money. I think that's <laughs> the only thing that he <laughs> believes in. So your question about um, what is it gonna look like for black folks, you know, I remember being going to DC, a few times when Barack Obama was the president and honey, getting off that plane, child, you just feel like yeah, the sexiest thing yeah. in the world. Strolling right, through right, Georgetown. Right. It's just, DC just has this energy, right? Yeah. Honey under Trump. <laughs> but I bring that up to say, <laughs> I bring that up to say there, there was a black political class and an emerging black co- political class. Mm. And, I am worried. I mean, when you look at this administration, I mean, outside of Ben Carson, you know, obviously there's a lot of reasons why Black folks are staying away, which makes a lot of sense. But I'm worried about the progress that was being made, how far we are actually set back. You know, will we have to climb back from the levels of, say, climbing um, from the 50s and the 60s? You know, will it be that kind of recession to where we have to claw ways back from? Or will this just be a blip on the screen and we can kind of pick up where we kind of left off with Barack Obama? You know, so that's kind of like a question that I think about all the time. Like, what is this going to look like? Um, How long is it going to take us to recover? That's a better way. That's a better question, I think. I, I always think about that. Because at the end of the day, it's always going to take Black folks longer, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. that's how the system is designed. We always have to play catch up. So how how much catch up will we have to play this? And time? And, right. bailing,
0: and bailing people out and saving people like we always oh, right. feels like Black people are the ones that come in, do the right thing, vote for the right people, and get mm-hmm. get do the cleanup. And it just yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm yeah. getting planting.
3: It's true. We have, well, to have left the house. We have, to right. to have left. We ain't left the house. We still cleaning
1: up. Right. Well, speaking of recovering
3: um, from Trump. Trump. I'm (laughs) telling you, I had a
2: sweater on. I'm taking off my legit clothing while we're having this conversation.
1: (laughs) Let's, Let's talk a bit more about recovering and as it relates to the 2020 election. Because the next president, if it's not Donald Trump, will influence how we as a country but also as as a race do recover from the trump presidency um so you know from your view nola what uh role has race played in the 2020 election we had we had black candidates um we no longer do um and yeah so so talk a little bit about that um and and yeah the ro- the role that race plays played and still does in the 2020 election and with Biden and Sanders um Biden pretty much a sure thing for the as a democratic nominee uh w- what are we looking at
2: here <laughs>
3: oh right um i think the republicans did a really great job After the 2016, during the 2016 election and after coming for Democrats in the way that identity politics is so ingrained in the the Democratic Party. Totally. They weaponized weaponized that. Um, They did a really, really good job of making identity arguments seem as if they are attacking whiteness. Hmm. Right. It, it wasn't a space open up to say, wait, maybe these are some valid concerns here. They just framed it as an attack against whiteness. Right.
2: And again, and I think this,
3: that... this feels yeah,
0: like go ahead. this feels like years and years ago. But 2016, I'm just directing our listeners. Remember what happened over the summer of 2016 at right after Trump was election, uh, elected. Remember that slew of there were back to back to back unarmed. Uh, black men being killed by police, and mm-hmm. that was the resurgent. That was the the real start of Black Lives Matter. Was right, yeah. like right after Trump was elected, or maybe I mean it was slightly before, but it was but that, 20, yeah. that it was right, but that 2016 was when it was really um re- folks really started paying attention. Um, yeah. in to all of these police killings, and that was I remember the Republican Party saying. Democrats hate police, Democrats mm-hmm. hate law enforcement, Democrats mm-hmm. hate white people, mm-hmm. black Democrats yeah. hate white people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's just reminding of that context. Sorry to
3: interrupt. A- absolutely. No, no, no. That No, that's great context. And a few years ago, I actually interviewed some BLM members on my show. It's called the Arts and Activism Season. And they talked about that very thing. You know, I think at that particular point, when I interviewed them, they had just been placed on some sort of list as kind of like some quasi terrorism group, mm-hmm. um, so that was the, that was a powerful conversation, and especially from the perspectives of the women of BLM, which BLM was started by women, queer right. women, and yep. how they felt like they were pushed out of the movement. Anyhow, that that's a whole other con- that's a whole other podcast, <laughs> right, right? But um, <laughs> that's coming, a whole out, of coming out of the weeds, coming out of the weeds. But in terms of uh, race in the 2020 election, so I think that the Republicans did a great job of weaponizing identity politics. And so when it came down to Kamala, who I was team, team Harris all the way, yeah. um, by the time the Black woman hit the stage, by the time the Black man, Cory Booker, hit the stage, by the time Deval Patrick came into the race, by the time Castro was in the race, um, even Buttigieg, right? Because they also construct that narrative that Black folks are um, homophobic. Right. Um, right. The Republicans did such a great job of kind of disgracing identity mm. to where it was obvious that identity was present, obviously on a debate stage, but I think they shamed folks to the point mm. to where if you... When we're thinking about Kamala, you know um you had to ask yourself all these different sets of questions, right because right. one of the first things that they did was tell black folks that she's not on your side and it worked it absolutely right. worked. I asked the woman to her face how did how did it feel about black people not being on her side and that woman told me that it hurt it mm. hurts those are her exact words. it hurts, it hurts you know
0: and, and she didn't get the nearly the type of so this, I'm just pointing out some of these double standards that I know you are mentioning, but I just want to flesh out so our, our mm-hmm. listeners know exactly what we're talking about here. Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor; she was the Attorney General of the state of California. Yeah, um, and that was a big thing that I at least saw Republicans uh, using against her, her identity, against her. This black woman who, who, since she's a cop, since she's an AG, she doesn't she's not in it for black people. How could you vote for someone that is a cop? How could you vote for someone who is a DA, right. basically? And that that was never held against Amy Klobuchar, who was also right. a attorney. Um, and, and the same way that I did, I did, identity was weaponized against Booker too, um, You know, all you heard about Mayor Pete was that he was this Rhodes Scholar who could speak different languages right. and, um, and was the mayor of a town. And, and Booker like, was like, "Hello, right, hello." Of, <laughs> it's all about, Cory Booker was the mayor of a legitimately like a major town, no shade to, yeah. uh, to South Bend, Indiana, but um, and was a Rhodes Scholar and speaks all these languages as well. But he didn't get the shine because he's mm-hmm. not the the white like Wonder Boy, like right. uh, this, you know, Mayo Pete as they call him.
3: And you know, Cory got those black like the, those black dude eyes, you know, like yeah, like. Mm-hmm. He looked like he really could beat your ass, though. Like, for real. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if, if if America's ready to have a black president that, like, you know... He's saying, he's saying some MS, you know, once the mic is off. You know?
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. He, Booker is, like, badass, too. Didn't right, like, chase right. people down, like, when he was mayor? Like, he would, like, run after criminals and stuff. Like, I know. In,
3: in Newark. Like, damn. I know. <laughs> but, you know, it's... Where, where where, a pre-Trump election, that would have been a historic moment for the Democratic Party to have so much diversity up there. But the way that they just drilled down on this identity piece, it didn't help the diverse folks on that stage. And I think it actually kind of worked against them. You know, mm-hmm. not that that's really surprising, but I think that the Democratic Party was still hoping that they were the party of identity, and that the party of identity, what would, would um, would still kind of perform the way that it might have performed in sixteen or twelve, you know what I'm saying? But it, yeah. it didn't yeah. work out that way, you know. Um, so what? So what? W- what would that mean go- going forward? You know, back to April's question. Um, we've gone so we've gone backwards, and I really don't yeah. know. And that's and I always come back to this question, how long will it take black folks to recover from this? You know, how, you know, um, because we were making strides, we were making strides and, but at the same time, there's also another part of this, another part of the story too, that that's also happening. Um, The way that they are dividing black folks. Like if you are, you know, the the whole ADOS movement, the African descendant of slave movement mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. our diaspora cousins, like mm-hmm. you know, like this is insidious, like you said, Jonathan. This is truly insidious. You know that the ADOs movement I- is somehow picking up on political rhetoric from the Trump administration and aligning with with them. Like it's it's horrifying. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it really is the way that the the administration in charge gets to set the tone, um, and it's just, I mean. Just contrast it with Obama. Like, I just, it's just so hard to think back to that. It's like painful to think back to it because yeah. um, how we've been set back. Um, and I just, oh, man. Okay, wait. So I feel like we could go on and on and on. I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I have two questions, two more questions. Yes. Um, well, the first one's quick. Um, and by the time we record this, so this is good. I'm going to ask you to make a prediction because by the time this gets published, we are going to know whether your prediction is true or not. So Uh-oh. who is. Let's assume vice. Uh, let's assume Vice President Biden is going to be the Democratic uh, nominee for president against Trump. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that. I'll predict that. But I'm going to ask mm-hmm. you to predict who is he going to pick for his vice presidential slot. Because to you know, I... black women, it, right. it is, This is uh, you know, Stacey Abrams is on the short list, and uh, Kamala Harris are, are on the short list. So I should say, who would you like to see him pick?
3: You know. It... <laughs> if he is well, here's the thing. So yeah. Joe Biden, I think we're really gonna get to see who Biden is, like who he really is under yeah. from under Barack Obama, right? Yeah. I've seen him twice in the last couple months. And um he is he has a fiery personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we've all seen, like we're all seeing seeing that he has a fiery personality, and he said that he's going to pick the best vice president, not necessarily just In service of identity politics. He's said that. So if, if he is the type of president that does not want to sideline his vice president. So the way I'm going to answer this question, it really just depends on how whatever president is in sees the role of a vice president. So while I would want to say, I would love to see Kamala Harris as a vice president. Yeah. That's if she has an active role in a presidency, but if she's just decorative, I don't want to see that happen either. Right. right? I'd rather see her her as attorney general. Exactly. AG or secretary of state, you know, like give her a substantive position. So Mm -hmm. it just depends if he is the Barack Obama type of president, to so where he gives his vice president visibility and real responsibility, then yes, I would love to see her be the VP. But if it's just decorative, um, I, I don't know.
0: I'm gonna, um, oh, yeah, and I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna get a lot of flack for this. I hope he has. He's not gonna pick a decorative VP because he's a hundred years old. I'm sorry, So right. He needs to. He needs to have someone who is. I think a little bit more sprightly and bouncing exactly. around. Thing. And you know how I mean think about think about how the presidency
3: ages people. Remember how Barack Obama mm-hmm. that first year you saw those pictures? I'm t- of him? Let me like, tell you oh, something. Let me tell you something. When I saw him Super Tuesday.
0: Yeah.
3: When I saw him three months ago when I took my students to go and see him talk at a community college. He had aged, I kid you not, this yeah. man had aged at least 15 years between that that those months.
2: Um, mm.
0: you. Just so, that's what I, and I, people call me ageist, but I just don't think it is a, an unreasonable thing to um, point out that you're, the person running for president will be past 80 years old in their first, you know, if they make it to a second term. Um, because uh, people people, He's the most powerful man in the country, in the world. So if he makes, if he becomes president, so it's just not crazy that we want to ask these questions: Is he going to be okay to be, to to continue on like that? And is he, who is he going to put in place that's going to actually have some real power? Because I, I can't expect him to remain so sprightly and outgoing,
3: mm-hmm. and,
0: and you know, for years and years and years, because he's going to be eighty damn years old.
3: And you know, the thing, I think, in, in if we contextualize it, right? Like I don't know, I don't know what people's idea of the presidency is, right. but it, it isn't a av- it is a highly involved job. So it's not just being concerned about his age just because we're American, we're obsessed with youth. No, it's it's deeper than that, right? Like I don't think people understand what it means to be on the presidential campaign trail and how many events in one day, in one day, those people attend across the country. It is so Mm. much work, you know, and when you get in office, it is even more work. And then you add the global component to it. So it's not just being worried just because of the, the, the number itself, the age itself, it's the toll. It's the physical, emotional, and psychological toll that that job takes. Right. So James, right. And I completely agree with you. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, and I can understand, you know, this is also a huge, this works in favor for the Republicans because they say that people that deal in identity politics are too emotional and that the arguments aren't logical. I think When you state something like that, concerned about Joe Biden's age, it's easy for someone to want to respond emotionally and say, oh, you're being ageist. Well, no, Mm -hmm. these these are my concerns, you know, because this job is involved. Right. Right. Um, And that's more of my concern. And I don't know if if I had it as acutely until I saw him the other Mm -hmm. night, not that he looked not that he looked older, per se. He just looked tired. Yeah. And he's been mm. through it, he's been through it, and he's gonna go that through man it is and he's wait. still going through it. If he gets the exactly. nominee, just
0: wait. People forget Trump was just impeached over illegally getting uh campaign dirt against right. Joe Biden. So that's gonna come mm-hmm. up again. He's gonna all
3: hunter Biden, Barisma, all that stuff's gonna come up again, and it's gonna Seems win. Seems like Skywalker. years ago, yeah. That's it. right, Trump, crazy. That's right, and don't think it's not on that man's mind. I mean, oh, when you think totally. about the just the tragedy in that man's family and then trump just like ripping off the band-aids so publicly and just right. so cruelly like man who yeah. that okay, man well, has a lot me, on his mind let mm-hmm. me ask
0: you our one last question we ask all of the folks that come on our podcast um what can what can white people who are allies quote-unquote anti-racist quote-unquote call it whatever you want people who are looking to dismantle white supremacy Um, and let's focus on government now, um, white supremacy and all these systems that we just talked about in terms of not even overtly discriminatory policies within our government, but things that inure to the harm of, of black people. Um, Mm -hmm. what can, what can white people looking to make a difference do? This show is about dismantling racism. And a lot of Mm -hmm. our viewers are white, very sort of woke, quote unquote. I hate
2: mm-hmm. all these terms, by the way, but I'm just using them. <laughs> um, what can what what should they do? This is now you know
0: you're a, you're a political expert, um, and people, and I'm not. So what 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 can white folks do to help the system in terms of black and brown folks? I
3: I love that you started that thread on Twitter uh, with that question the other night, and I'll <laughs> I'll really I'll go back to to my response. You know, listen, um. Yeah and not come into the conversation thinking that you know, the answers. Mm. And I talked about that example when I was home recently, um, during Mardi Gras season. And I was at this highly, highly gentrified coffee shop and talking to this really nice man. And he had been in New Orleans for like, however long. And in his mind, you know, he was an expert. I think he had been there like four or five years. I don't know why people, why transplants do that. It's infuriating. Um, so, you know, we're having this conversation and he's there with his dog Luna. I love dogs. My dog Austin is sitting right here with me. That's 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 my baby. <laughs> there you go. And so he was he was telling me about what the problems and the issues are in New Orleans. And so I'm sitting there looking at him, like, uh. oh, tell me more. Uh. You know, but he in his mind, he's a woke white dude, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. so he's like, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, um pets, uh pets being left abandoned, you know, that's the number one issue. I said, oh, that's for the number sense. one issue in this black city. Oh
0: my that. goodness.
3: What? I said, well, no. And I looked at this man in his face. I said, actually, no, you're the, the number one issue in this mm. black city. Mm. And he was like, what? I said, damn. well, you are occupying space that does not belong to you. He wasn't and right not only are you occupying space, but you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And this was a real, I mean, like, it's like, it stopped the whole coffee shop because I don't give a damn. Mm. Right, you know, (laughs) and especially when it involves my home. Oh, honey, I I turn into a different person, you know. Um, but but it was a useful conversation, you know. I'm I'm also a teacher, so I try to you know have teachable moments. After I take you down a peg or two, then we can just go ahead and continue with the conversation, right? But I'm here to tell you, gentrification, boo boo, is the number one issue in this black in this historical black city, right? So that is to say he he wasn't listening in the beginning of the conversation. He mm-hmm. thought he had all the answers sitting next to this native, right? So it's those types of interventions the, uh, in those types of conversations that our allies have to be open to and listening and not thinking that they know every damn thing, right? Mm. Um, because you read a book, because I can tell you, I'll tell you something. I'm sure I read that book and ten times more. I can guarantee right. you that we've
0: all read ton of hussy codes. Like right. hello,
3: okay. You <laughs> you you don't you want you don't want to play that game with me. You know right. what I'm saying? And I'm not talking theory here. I'm talking about actual people's lives, right? So right, it it's more about having real honest respectful conversations civil conversations but if the allies aren't open to listening to what we have to say right then how 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 far can we really go with the allyship Mm. you know so we we both need to come to the table and then on on our sides too because a lot of these issues are so emotional for us because they are experiential and they are personal sometimes you know we can come to the conversation with chips on our shoulders and I'm only speaking right. from experience, you know? Right. So if we're trying to have honest conversations on both sides, we have to both come as, uh, honest and open brokers. Right. But on the side of our, our white brothers and sisters, like y'all got to listen, you know, because that's my trigger, you know, you trying right. to mansplain or you trying yeah. to whitesplain when I am giving you a set of facts, that's going to trigger me. Mm. And then mm. and it's not going to be a fruitful conversation.
2: Right. right.
3: So I, I don't know how useful that is, but it you know is. No, it is, is very it's
0: very useful. It's so interesting because we all the people, all the activists, all the political experts, all the um black and brown folks that we bring onto this show are come from all stripes. And when we ask them this question, what can white allies and anti racists do? We all say the same thing. We all say Listen, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. you can't know what you're talking about because this is an experiential thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to flag that for our listeners that it is no coincidence. We're not, we don't brainstorm and tell people what to say on this <laughs> podcast. <ahead of> time. <laughs> This is this is right. not a big conspiracy by Black people to get you all <laughs> to think one thing. This is all of us saying the same thing because we're telling you from our lived experience interacting with well-meaning white folks who want to yeah. change and want to help yeah. things,
3: but don't know
0: how to be told that they don't know something. Yeah. Um, so th- I'm, let me step down off my, the whole way off my soapbox now. So
3: <laughs> I love this conversation so much, like I could just go on and on and on, like it's, it's such a great and powerful conversation. And I actually don't get a lot of chance to talk about race in a huge, in a profound way, the way in which I engage with race is from a broader identity perspective, you know, more of an intersectionality perspective. So that's how I talk about it in my work. And that's how Mm -hmm. I talk about it at work. So I love just a raw conversation about it,
1: you know, in the spirit of continuing that conversation, um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, letting our listeners know where they can communicate with you, where they can chat with you, Twitter, um, and your, yeah, please talk about your talk show and, um, yeah, where people can, where people can continue the conversation with
3: you on social media. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So, um, where you can find Nola Haynes TV. We are on YouTube. Please subscribe, subscribe, just type in Nola Haynes TV, Google it, or just go straight to YouTube. And we have about four or five seasons. We have quite a bit of um, content up there for you. And the most important thing, our bread and butter is if people subscribe, please, 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 please mm-hmm. subscribe to my indie indie talk show. And what is Nola Haynes TV? Um, also known as NHTV. So Like this podcast conversation, what we would do is we would go to where you all film it and film you doing your job and then having a conversation with you afterwards. So we Mm -hmm. actually go in the field and we show dope people doing dope shit, basically. So it's kind of like a um, mini docu, kind of like docu style talk show. Um, And and the whole the whole the whole point of that is to kind of come outside of the studio and to, um, just introduce people to different, different communities, you know, different jobs to see what people do. Um, my entire show came out of me not working after I graduated from Harvard. So okay. the whole component of let me come to your job and see what you do like that. again, mm-hmm. That's experiential. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause it came out of me not working. So, right. <laughs> um, And also wanting to give people something substantive. You know, I don't do the whole gossip thing. If that's what you're looking for, that's not what NHTV is about. Not at all. You know, we're about who's doing amazing things in our shared communities. So that's what NHTV is about. So you can find me on Twitter at Nola Haynes. My um, exact at is at Nola H. The Veil because Nola Haynes TV wasn't always Nola Haynes TV. The fans named it that. The show is actually called Nola Haynes, The Veil, which is kind of a twist on W.E. Du Bois' concept of The Veil. On Instagram, um, you can also find the latest season coming out in about a week or so on IGTV, and my Instagram is at Nola Haynes, and that's where I live more of the fun part of my life. On Twitter is my academic presence.
1: Nola, this has been something else this has been such a good conversation and we can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today we really appreciate it
3: i listen i when jonathan told me that i could stay in my kimono and this is audio (laughs) i was like come on let's do this (laughs) got even more relaxed (laughs) i had had a great time have a wonderful day
1: And now it's time for this episode's action item.
0: This episode's action item is a little bit different. So it is not going to be sending you out into the world to study anything or to ponder anything. It is an action item that you can do right now. So stop what you're doing and can do it right now. We're so fortunate to have um, just about 2,500 subscribers to this podcast. And we are really trying to rally folks who are listening to our podcast to support our platform. And the best, best best way you can do that is to leave a rating or a review, make sure you're subscribed and share that with your friends. Now we say this at the end of every podcast. April says it in the outro at the end of every podcast and a lot of people probably have turned it off by then. But I don't think people realize how really really helpful this is to us so we have about 2,500 subscribers and like 80 or 90 ratings or like four or five star ratings um they're mostly five star it really does help so if you could stop what you're doing now and just take two or three clicks and clicks i'm 100 and do that for us that would be great
1: This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com.
0: You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and, and keep, keep asking, asking questions. questions.